Welcome to Venn Presents, exploring the depths and riches of the Christian faith. This episode is the next in our conversations with women and men who are passionate about following Christ in the whole of life. We go behind the moments of success and endeavour to talk with remarkable people about their ordinary life with God, at work, rest and play. As you listen, we hope you'll be able to imagine how the gospel might look in the communities and callings you find yourself in today. Now, over to host Sam Bloor. Welcome to the program. My guest for this episode is a good friend of the Venn Foundation uh, and a good friend of mine too. He's become a, a great friend over the years, Mark Mayhew, joining us all the way from the UK. Mark, great to have you with us. Uh, it's great to be with you, Sam. Thanks for having me. Hey, look, it would be remiss of me not to be uh, mentioning, and this is really going to date where we're, when we're recording this, but the, the World Cup, you know, is this, is this England's <laughs> year? Is, have they got what it takes? <laughs> yeah, it's always coming home. I mean, if you ever wanted to know if the English are slightly delusional, it's our attitude towards the World Cup, where every single World Cup, um, we believe with 100% confidence it's, uh, it's coming back. It also kind of explains some of us, our cynicism as, uh, as every uh, four years our hearts are broken. But we've got a pretty good team um, and I, I predict uh, we'll go out in the semis. That's, that's my prediction. Okay. And I think that's probably fair <laughs> enough. So if we get to the semis, I'll be really happy. Uh, quarters will be okay too. So there we go. Well, look, if you're not a fan of the FIFA World Cup, you've probably turned the podcast off already and uh, decided just let them uh, look Talk, talk the sports stuff. The other thing I wanted to say early on, Mark, and just acknowledge is that you've had some illness in the family. So you're probably uh, joining me in the early hours of your morning on a few hours sleep and it's the uh, the late evening here. So if either of us nod off, we'll have to just kind of uh, yell at each other through the, the platform and uh, crank, crank the handle again. Yeah, it's definitely not the same as being there in person, but uh, uh, it's just just great to be with you, and um, yeah, just love Van, love New Zealand, um, so uh, it feels like kind of like being virtually there for, for this next little bit, so thanks. Look, our reason for coming to you, Mark, is uh, several fold. One is, of course, you've been a long-term friend of many of the staff uh, at Venn Foundation. You were at Regent College with Andrew Shamey and with Nathan McClellan, you've been to New Zealand a number of times and uh, met us as a team. But really, this episode was to be about business. And I know that you were one of the ones who helped to start up the uh, institute there at Regent College that really focused on that, the Marketplace Institute, and also the Reframe course, which really wanted to give a resource to others who were grappling uh, with that. So... Can you sort of tell us a little bit about your own journey uh, to Regent in the first place? If you were to wind the clock back and uh, talk a little bit about how you came to just be there in the first place and, and even meet those guys. So I started my career after university in management consultancy with a big firm uh, called Accenture in London. And 
if uh, anyone doesn't know what management consultancy is, which was me before I had heard of it, um, basically businesses would pay us to come in and help solve business problems and help them with strategic planning. So uh, helping them think about how you get from A to B. So I started my career um, in this big firm in London. I really loved it. Um, it was exciting. I was working with um, really great people. Um, I was learning a lot. I was like a sponge. Um, I was living in London with some of my housemates from uni and that was going really well. And I was working there for a number of years. Um, it was kind of classic, like kind of climbing the business um, ladder, uh, the corporate ladder. And um, I was reasonably good at what I was doing and I enjoyed solving problems for businesses and trying to kind of add value to them. You know, at the same time, I'm living in London, which is global, um, busy city, high tech. And I was going to a church right in the center. And I started to have these questions around what does Jesus have to say to basically the majority of my life in London, um, including my work? So it wasn't really a crisis of faith. But I just remember coming out of church one day. It was My church was right near Piccadilly Circus, which is right at the centre, and looking up at these huge buildings um, and just, just the energy that you find in London. And I just wondered, what, what does Jesus have to say to this context? And I loved my work, and we were doing a lot of um, interesting strategic work, looking at how kind of mobile technology can change whole industries. And again, I was wondering, what... What does Jesus have to say to that? And um, it just started to kind of grow in me, this curiosity. And um, whether it was a curiosity or a crisis, I just wanted to know um, how, how does my Christian life connect to about 70% of my life in London. Um, I found that my non-Christian friends were asking questions about science and technology that I didn't really kind of understand. And I couldn't really understand how my work could be meaningful. So at that time, it felt like my Christian life was separated from my work life, that in your Christian life, those are the things that, um, you know, you have your, your prayer and your mission and your service and um, to others and that, and all of those things are really good. And then on this other side, I had kind of my work life and thinking about the city and thinking about politics. And um, I just, I really couldn't connect the two, but I had this intuitive sense that if Jesus is real and if he's changing the world, that these two should actually connect and I just um, I didn't know how and at the time I'd been saving uh, for a house deposit um, and so I had a little bit of savings and I just all of a sudden felt I think I want to go and do a theology degree which was not a thought that I had ever had before um, and it came on the scene uh, during a prayer meeting that I thought maybe this would be a good idea so I looked around and for those of you that do or don't know Regent College, Regent College is, is fairly unique that it was set up really about 50, 60 years ago to help people like me, um, people that are in um, industries or vocations, but are asking the question, how do you think integratively about your faith in those spaces? Um, and it's a graduate level, so it was uh, most Bible colleges I looked at, or theological colleges, were training missionaries and pastors, and I think that's fantastic, but that wasn't me. I, I just wanted to work out, okay, I'm kind of in my mid-late 20s, 
I want to use my work in a purposeful way. I don't just want to be an ATM for the church, which I believe in tithing. It's not a totally bad thing, but how can my work have significance? How can I be participating in what God wants to do? And I suppose ultimately, if God doesn't care about business, like if he doesn't care about what am I doing, then, then why am I doing it? Maybe I should go and do something else. Like, you know, at that time, I felt there was a hierarchy of vocations and that, you know, pastors are more important than missionaries. So um, that's what led me to go to Regent College with, with those questions. Yeah, if Jesus isn't down with it, better to find that out sooner rather than later, eh? Like that would be uh, money well spent. Yeah, well, yeah, and I did spend it. So I did spend that house <laughs> deposit. Um, so I took the house deposit and spent it on a, on a Regent degree. Um, and I don't, I don't regret it. I actually still don't own a house, but um, I don't mind as much anymore. Um, yeah, so I, I think that was, that was something I was thinking about. It's like, okay, yeah, I don't want to discover at like 60, 70 at the end of my career that these things don't matter. And so that was the idea of going to Regent was to kind of lay foundation down for, okay, does God care about business? How, do, you know, how does science fit? How does tech fit? How does it all fit together? Yes, and of course what you discovered was, of course, Jesus is down with it, and it does matter, otherwise we, we wouldn't be uh, talk, talking to you, I guess. Was there any talk or ministries going on at the time? Had you gone looking before? I, I know the sort of faith and work movement isn't a, a brand new thing. There have been... Uh, attempts to do that and to introduce that into church life and the people who who populate churches. Had you discovered any of that prior to Regent? Had it always felt like it was missing something? Had you just not come across stuff? Because it seems like a big deficit that that a church so close to Piccadilly Circus wasn't touching on that. Yeah, I think that probably the answer to that is varied and complex and I can probably only just speak from my own experience and I hadn't come across a lot of people talking about how God might be redeeming all aspects of life and I went to a brilliant church um, that I loved and it was it's rich and it is theologically rich Um, I think and there are there were some groups that were working on faith and work um kind of that kind of movement and that thinking back then I didn't know of them since since I went which was about 20 years ago um, a lot has changed and there are a lot more people being active in this and I think that also there's been a real shift theologically so I think that somewhere in the 20 uh, I think now if I shift from my personal experience and you look at kind of what happened historically I think that when you had particularly in the west you had this kind of Christian backdrop. I don't think the West ever was Christian. Like it was never, it's the kind of, the myth of a Christian nation. Like England, the UK was never Christian. New Zealand was never Christian. But it had certainly, the Christian narrative had seeped into culture and had essentially formed a lot of the basic assumptions. And I think that as the church was building on that, um, over time and then as kind of as society secularized we, the church ended up focusing a lot on evangelism and global mission which I don't think is entirely wrong and is actually in the 20th century that is a huge part of the church's story as it spread around the world and um, kind of explosion in mission uh, in the 19th and 20th century but I think that the church started to not have a focus on okay how do you think christianly about education about um, business about politics about science which actually if you look back 
in the preceding centuries, it was Christians that were very much shaping those areas and those sectors. So I think that when we got to kind of mid-late 20th century, we had shifted the dominant biblical narrative from this kind of rich understanding of God um, creating all things, all things being broken, but then him redeeming all things, that we kind of shifted into a kind of a narrow story that focused very much around sin, um, Jesus' work on the cross to overcome sin, and then going to heaven. All of that is true, um, but it's a, it's a narrow um, view onto what is a bigger biblical story. It doesn't explain why God created the world in the first place and what he's hoping for. And also the fact that the cross and what Jesus does is, is not just um, solving the problem of our personal sin, but it's, it's actually solving the problem of all the brokenness, um, so, which we often apply to like, our marriages and our family life. You know, that's kind of quite um, often talked about in church life, but we don't actually talk about how it could be um, impacting education or business or the way that we design cities or those types of things. So um, I think that's a little bit... So my own personal experience was that, was that I hadn't really heard about that big scope of what God is doing. And when I heard that story, that creation to new creation story, it was like looking out of a small cabin window and seeing the vista of like the Alps or the Rockies or the mountains on the sunlight. It was amazing. All of a sudden, I, I, and I didn't know where my place fit in church because I think from a young age, I didn't feel like I was called to be a pastor or an, or an evangelist or a missionary. And I couldn't quite therefore find my place. But then all of a sudden I realized that actually there's every, you, you know, you can play anywhere that God like, has invited you and your giftings. And I could see that, oh, the way that God made me and the gifts he gave me, I could use that. And it was like looking at this amazing vista of opportunity and realizing that God's vision for life is so much bigger than I had ever imagined. And that was really new to me and really exciting. You arrive at Regent, um, they're often quite sort of, uh, it's a bit of a, a giddy rush as you meet sort of dozens and dozens of people who are mm-hmm. sort of questing the way you are and uh, your age and stage. And um, what were the sort of conversations that were happening that you were just immediately drawn to, the sort of the faculty, and particularly with, say, the focus on business, the, the Marketplace Institute that was being formed? What were they talking about specifically around business that you, you hadn't heard spoken about before? Yeah, so I think that that the way that Regent worked, and I think this was kind of genius, is that they started us actually back in the biblical story. So you would do like a lot of work on the Old Testament and New Testament, understanding how that story really hangs together. And I think in that you discovered that that business and work, for example, I, I had already always associated it with the fall. So like you know that that. Genesis 3, it all goes wrong, and then God says, like, curses the ground, and you have to kind of toil and work on it. And so, and, and if you think about then our dominant narrative culturally, our, our goal is essentially to escape work, right? It's like either to get to retirement to then live your best life, or that, you know, the ultimate right. goal is early retirement, right? Like everyone's scrambling <laughs> yeah, over yeah. each other. So when you, so it's, and the reality is for a lot of us, the experience of work it is, isn't great. Like we don't love it. We're toiling away. And so I, that's something that I had always associated with business. But then 
actually seeing it's almost like we totally don't read Genesis 1 and 2 I don't know quite how I had read them before but then you realize that actually God you know work and business fit beforehand that actually it was in God's vision that we would work that we would in metaphorical language you know we would garden the world that like um and so I think my experience at Regent starting to think about business was first of all re-narrating the purpose of business so like what and, and the purpose of work what is the purpose of work what is the purpose of business and starting to see that flowing out of the biblical story because again if we go back to that question well, if God doesn't care about business and I'm committed to God like why should I then care about business so the first thing was actually looking like does God care about business where do we see that in the scriptures and we actually see work and business occurring right in Genesis 1 and 2 obviously the full you know creates all sorts of problems which we still deal with today anyone looking around a business can see the business is broken but obviously then that's the story of the bible of god coming in and we see it in israel that actually i'd never really read much of the old testament and i mean you know you get to leviticus and your eyes just kind of roll over and you just kind of skip through as fast as you can but actually when you go through a lot of the old testament it's got a lot of teaching about business and work and it says how you now it's an agrarian culture so it's very different to ours but it talks about how you should treat your cattle and how you should build buildings and how you should treat your customers and um, I'm not in any way implying that we adopt directly um, those Old Testament principles today I'm not not suggesting we just kind of like slap down the old you know the Ten Commandments on our lawns and just uh, like you know directly apply those in because that's a different culture and so the context is different but you know, at the heart of the law, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that really, that creates the centrality of like then, okay, then how does business work that out? How does business um, understand what it means to love God, love neighbor, love your, um, your context? And what we start to see in the Old Testament is there's all sorts of examples that, I would say they kind of give us inspiration. So it is very different, but it gives us inspiration. Um, So one example of that is the gleaning laws. So if you've ever heard of the gleaning laws, this was this idea, um, and you get it in the book of Ruth um, is where you see it most. Um, It occurs earlier in the um, Old Testament as an actual law, but you see it in practice in the book of Ruth where um, there is a field um, and God says, don't, don't, harvest your field all the way to the end um leave the edges so that the poor can come and work the edges of the field and they can essentially provide food for themselves so Mm. it's kind of an interesting story and it actually happens in ruth that's how ruth um gets plugged in after she um you know her husband dies and she's basically impoverished is that she's gleaning um uh, the, the edges of the field. So that's a story, and it's interesting because God's saying, number one, don't maximize your business like for profit, right? Because it doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense back there, right? Like you would use your whole field. And if you think again today, what we're taught in business school and, and the dominant logic is like maximize your business, right? Like maximize mm-hmm. the profits of your business. Uh, don't necessarily break yeah. the law or do anything unethical. So there's nothing like unethical with like, you know, uh, your field. But but actually, he's saying, like, provide 
provide space for the poor. And it's not also, it's interesting, and I don't want to get into the kind of like the, the political social debates about handouts and things. I think there's a place for like immediate aid. But even in this example, um, it's actually that people can participate in work themselves. And so yes. I think that's a really interesting principle that we could think about that in our own businesses. And I know in our business that I'm running right now, um, we try to think about where are there spaces for gleaning? Like where are there, there how do we um, in our business not maximise what we're doing but create space for others to participate and benefit in ways that are applicable like in the 21st century, which is very different. That's awesome, Mark. I love hearing those moments where something that has been up at sort of 10,000 feet uh, drops down and, and a specific thing gets carried through. Not in a way that you know lacks context and there's not a sort of a, a, a slavish application or a, a non-nuanced or literal application of a, of a specific law or principle, but, but a, an invitation to imagine what this might look like. Uh, in our lives and in our contexts. Yeah, and I, I definitely think it's not easy. Um, so, you know, I've kind of given us... And my experience was when I first went to Regent, I, Regent's a two-year degree, and um, I think one of the things that Regent did is it, it helped us think theologically about the narrative of business and work. Okay, like, how does it matter to God? I think the other thing it did early on was show how the church had always been involved in those areas during history, and I think that was really encouraging and made you feel like you were really standing on solid ground, that there's a lot of inspirational people that have gone before us. Um, the other thing that was really challenging and then started to become difficult for me was realising that business wasn't neutral. So... Up to that point, my practice as a management consultant um, and generally my approach to work was I just assumed that what we were doing in our work practices was was neutral, like there wasn't a right or wrong way to approach solving these problems. Um, certainly, we were, we were acting with uh, integrity and ethics, you know, we weren't, weren't trying to kind of do anything dodgy. Um, but as I went to Regent, you started to see that the way the world is shaped is it's shaped around certain logic, like I mentioned earlier, that kind of maximizing kind of wealth logic for shareholders is, is the dominant logic around um, business. Another thing that affected my business was around treating everything within a business as a resource, as capital, as an asset. Um, and so we would talk about people the same way we would talk about um, concrete or cash, right? Like it's something that you can quantify. So in my work, a lot of the time we were looking to create efficiencies in the businesses. And so imagine me at a whiteboard with a bunch of people saying, okay, how do we make this engineering process, let's say going out to telephone poles and repairing them, like how could this be a more efficient um, thing? And it's, it's actually quite a fun problem to try to solve. It's like, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't seem in any way unneutral. But actually what Regents helped me start to see is that we would talk about the workforce. So I put a number on the, on the board of like 10,000 people, you know, work in this place. And so it's just a number. I don't think that that's, Jill and John or Alex and they have families and they have lives and they you know and they're made in the image of God with intrinsic worth actually I take that 10,000 number and I multiply it by their average salary 
And that gives me a cash value. So I've like translated them into a cash value. And then I'm saying, okay, well, how could we take 20% out of this value to make us more efficient? Could we put in an IT system that makes some of these processes redundant, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's my little caveat. I'm not saying that um, we shouldn't make businesses efficient or we shouldn't use technology. Like I absolutely, that is part of what, um, you know, part of, part of the economy and the business growing and developing. But it's the, it's the how we think about it. It's like we don't see on my whiteboard that we're talking about people and that actually maybe we should think about that with care. So um, I don't know. Do we have time for another, for another quick example of where this came out? Yeah, totally we do. Yeah, okay. yeah, because I, 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 love, I love that there's, there's these ways in which uh, even, even how you strategize and – uh, throw people up on a whiteboard like that. It's, it's, it's shaping the ways we think about them. These sort yeah, of strategic so the, things are, are doing a, a, a formation to the people who are deploying them in their, in their management systems, hey? Yeah, so, yeah, because the way that, like, modernity, like, makes us thing is it turns everything into an it, right? Like, we turn the world into an it. And there's, um, there's a philosopher who... Um, basically calls it I it like the world is an it an object versus I thou so if you ask me for example like what's what's you know how much is that tree that beautiful oak tree outside worth right immediately I as a management consultant would think okay let's look up how much oak is worth on the market right and it would um, you know give me a price per kilogram I'd go out, somehow estimate the weight of the size of the tree, and I'd multiply that, and I'd say, oh, that, that tree's worth about a million, a million dollars, right? But is that, I've turned it into an it, right? Okay, but like, is that the only value of the tree? Certainly, that's its economic value. But I remember when I was in Auckland, um, I went to this park, and I saw, I think, the most beautiful tree I'd ever seen, this incredible, like, oak tree. And um, it has, so it, there's value in my calculation that is not being included in that. And so um, this was starting to create a crisis for me. So I'd gone to Regent for a year and I'd had this big vision of how God is redeeming all things and, you know, the purpose of business. I was really excited and it was a two year degree, but um, I needed to earn a little bit more money to finish it. So in the middle of my degree, after a year, I went back to Accenture and I worked again. So I find myself back in these rooms at the whiteboard I've got this big vision, but then all of a sudden I'm starting to realize that the way that I am kind of working, and I don't really like it. Like I'm treating these people like it's. They're just it's, and everything is an it, and, and there's no conversation around you know, another way to solve this problem. At the same time, I've got this tension because I do believe that we need to move forward as a business. We can't just have everyone shuffling papers forever when we could put those papers into an IT system and and actually, that also helps with safety because the systems are more reliable. So I'm, I'm stuck. Like, what do I do? It's kind of a crisis. And in that year, I was working for a, um, an a energy firm, and they had a problem that they were losing money every year. And their problem wasn't just as much they were losing money, but they didn't know where they were losing it. And so we were tasked with finding out like where the kind of the leaks were in their systems and then plugging them. And one of those leaks, um, metaphorically speaking, it's not a real leak, um, uh, was that um, in, in the UK, there is a law that with um, you can't turn people's gas off just when they don't pay their bills. 
So we realized that there was a certain amount of customers who were like the elderly and the poor and the vulnerable who didn't pay their bills um, and we weren't allowed to shut the gas off. Um, and that was incurring the business quite a lot of money, like millions of, of pounds a year in um, in gas they were giving out and they weren't able to collect any income. So there I am, we're at the whiteboard, we've got a team, we're here to solve a problem, you know, we're good at what we do, we like solving problems, trying to make the world a better place. And all of a sudden, you know, we come across, this is one of the problems that we're, there were a number of other areas where they're losing money, but we came to this one and we start talking about the problem and then the whole team sets about to solve that problem, right? Because that's what we do, that's what we're paid to do. And um, people were starting to say we could lobby the government, we could do this, we could put smart meters in, we could, you know, all sorts of things to try to recoup like back this money. And I had just, this was in my year, in between my, my two years at Regent, and I, all of a sudden, I said to people, I stopped, because I, I just felt deeply uncomfortable, which I'm sure many, many of you listening do feel uncomfortable. It's obvious when I say it now, but it wasn't obvious in the room, because it's just another problem that we're trying to solve that we paid for. And I said, okay, explain this problem again. At who are these customers? And again, like, someone starts to say, well... They're people that can't pay their bills, the, the, the elderly, those that are poor. And so I said, so, okay, so the, it's the elderly, the poor, the vulnerable. And everyone in the room, you could see it was like they were being rehumanized because these are good people. I work with good people. They're not like, you know, burn them and like take the money type people, right? Like these are good yeah. people. But this is where the system's not always neutral. We start to kind of like adopt certain assumptions and you could see in the room, people were, were realizing, oh my goodness, yeah, we're talking about the vulnerable. Like we can't. And so we always knew in this project, there was a certain amount of money we were never going to get back. And we'd been told that from the beginning, you know, to kind of re reallocate, you know, there's certain things. And, and so I, I said, do you think that maybe this is not the area that we're going to kind of save money and get back? Can we just like leave this? And it was amazing. Once you pointed out that this isn't an it, that these are real people, everyone in the room came on board and we said, yeah, absolutely, we can't do that. Let's actually, let's solve another problem like our billing system doesn't bill correctly to the right pence, right? Um, and so I think that's an example where I had always approached my work as completely neutral. I'd not seen a different way or how I'd been shaped. Like, like the way that we're trained from an early age is, is just a certain logic, a certain assumptions. And some of those are good. And so I want to say that like, there's a lot of our work and a lot of the modern economy that is good. But there's also ways in which we've been shaped that probably isn't that helpful um, and doesn't end up having great outcomes for everyone. Um, or the world around us. And so um, I started to then kind of go into a crisis because that, that's a positive story of where I was maybe able to create some change at work. But I, I felt, going back to Regent in my last year, very compromised. Like, okay, I don't know what to do. I'm in this job where I'm good at this job. I realize it's not neutral. I've got this big vision of God redeeming the world and I feel like I can't do anything. I feel like this is so much bigger than me Maybe I could do it when I was a CEO, but I'm just like a kind of just a, a consultant. I, I didn't know what to do. And so I go back, mm. really, I've told the good story, but most of the year I was losing. and I felt like I wasn't making any difference. And if anything, I was just participating in a system I didn't believe in anymore. And I went back to Regent with my tail between my legs. And um, it was there that God, um, I, I think it was a really good thing. I think I was humbled. I think I was going to kind of 
probably have this vision to help save the world with everyone else and realizing how difficult it is. And it is difficult. Um, but God spoke to me and said, but that's, that's, that's the role of, of the church. It's the role that you play is to start to kind of, how could we reimagine, right? It's, a, it's an interesting problem. Like we do want businesses to be more efficient, but we don't want to treat everyone as an it. And we don't want to treat the, treat the environment just as an it. So then we don't want to treat our supply chain just as an it. But then you immediately you're like, yeah, but how, how do I do it in a different way? And we can't see a different way. And he said to me, that, that is, that's the role of the church. The role of the church with the power of the Holy Spirit is to reflect on my story and start to get my imagination and then start to just change things little by little that like we can actually start to nudge here, nudge there, share with each other our problems. I think that's one of the hardest things. You, you get so isolated um, no one else either understands your business or, or your sector. And, but actually, as you start to connect people and you start to talk about these things, you actually, mm. God gives us creative ideas that we actually can start to imagine a different way of business, a different way of doing science, technology, AI, that actually tr- contributes positively to the world, where business actually becomes a God-given thing that actually can be used as a force for good in the world, a force for blessing. You've described that so well, Mark, and I think one of the graces that God gives us is that limitation and that humbling a little bit. Hey, I, I do think there's a constant temptation that we face to take these kind of principles or these things and, and almost charge off without them. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, someone, Craig Gay at Regent calls it practical atheism, that um, we're not actually atheists, but practically we don't involve God in, in anything that we're doing at work. It's almost like you can't really see the relevance. But I think, you know, over and over, as I see things not working out very well, um, I get that quiet, like the Lord just kind of coming along and saying like, well, why don't we do it together? And that doesn't mean that when we do it with the Lord, like everything turns out well. But certainly it's, I think it's more encouraging it's more fun that even when things don't work out well you're like well you know lord you know at least we're together you know we we try things i'm learning and i think the other the other trap i think one trap is the kind of running away and doing it on your own uh without the lord and i think the other is to kind of feel disempowered that you you feel like everything is too overwhelming or we often think that we can only make changes when we're in positional power so a lot of people say oh, that sounds great. Um, maybe when I'm the CEO, right, like I could do that. So um, at the Marketplace Institute, we used to call it like the myth of the CEO. And basically it's this idea that we, we kind of have this idea that when we get to a certain position, we won't be constrained and then we'll be able to do whatever we want, right? It's like this idea that like, you know, all of a sudden you have this power to do what you want. Uh, sorry to do what you want but if you think about it it's it's a myth because everyone's constrained I mean you might think like the president or the prime minister like surely that's the most powerful role right in a country well if you just look and just talk to a prime minister or a president you realize well it's just a different set of constraints (laughs) like you know they might have a certain amount of power but they have another set of constraints and I think that sometimes we can think um you know you, you probably in church you've heard it like if you if you only think you're going to start giving money like when you've got lots of money you're actually never going to get there that actually um we can all 
we're all constrained. The only person that isn't constrained is the Lord. And if you're just in a cubicle, like that's our space of influence. And we can start to practice, okay, Lord, show me how my cubicle can just reflect a little bit more of your kingdom. How could this be a place that's a little bit more life-giving when people come into this space, right? Or if I'm running a team and I'm like, okay, how can my team, how can I kind of adopt some practices that just make this a team where there's just more life happening? And I think that actually, you know, it's dangerous for us to think that like, oh, when I've got lots of power, then I'll be able to use it well. That actually, I think the way that God works is he, he helps us start to work on these small things and working out like, okay, how can I make these small changes? And then I think as we grow in influence, whether that is positional power or relational influence or whatever that is, um, even influence amongst our, our communities and our neighbors, I think like God gives us that influence and we can actually do a lot better job of stewarding it from starting small. So, my encouragement to people when they say was like, well, I'll do those changes when I'm the CEO is that like, absolutely not. Like you could, you can start making those changes now and we can start to ask God, like, give me an imagination for how what I'm doing now could reflect a little bit more of your kingdom. Yeah, that's awesome. We got to catch up last week just as a prep for this. And one of the things you suggested was that there's been kind of almost a double arc to your story. And you know, you've said you walked out on that day from church and, and, and looked around Piccadilly Circus and was like, what does this have to do with this? You, you didn't mention this, but maybe suggesting to you a second epiphany or moment or that second arc got birthed when you were at Regent, but going, what about everyone else? You know, it's okay yeah. that I've got to come here and to yeah. have this reintegrated or to have my... My, my business life, the, the career that I felt called into my vocation, kind of redeemed in this way, validated in this way. But there's hundreds, thousands, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people working in business uh, and, and who need those dots connected, which really kind of birthed some of what you went on to do. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so, you know, after I finished Regent, um, I just, you know, started to realize okay we've got a problem like surely the answer can't be to everyone go to region and spend you know probably in the you know region of twenty thousand dollars once you like add in you know all your expenses on top and lack of earnings and so like that can't be the answer like you know 90 percent of people in the congregation maybe more are not pastors and uh, missionaries so what what about them what about us like what does it look like for us to actually have this be part of our church life and our normal narrative about the Bible. So that was kind of grew out of a, almost a frustration from me um, of like, this shouldn't be the way. Like, we shouldn't have our children ask, like, does God care about art? You know, it's like, of course he cares about art, right? Like, does God care about business? So I think out of that, I just increasingly got this passion to say, okay, how can we... Um, if the church is, you know, God's way of forming us, if it's his family, um, if we're growing in our faith in those places, um, what does it look like for us to get this vision that, that God is redeeming all things? And what does it look like as a community to walk that out? And um, I owe a guy called Mark Green at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. He uses the term whole of life discipleship. And that really kind of struck with me. I was like, oh, that's what it is. What does it mean to like 
grow um, as a Christian in every area of my life? Um, how do I kind of embrace that? So that was something that was growing in me. And then out of the blue, Regent College got back in touch with me. A guy called Paul Williams, who I know um, has been down to Venn. Paul and Sarah Williams, amazing people, uh, had a huge impact on my life. Paul was the marketplace professor at, um, at Regent, invited me back with Nathan uh, to be part of forming the Marketplace Institute. And so that was a real left turn for me. Um, I don't consider myself an academic. Um, I, um, I didn't see myself going back to a place like Regent College. But I went there out of my passion to say, like, how do we get like this theology, this vision of the Christian life and also some actual helpful tools, how do we get that out of places like Regent and into people's hands? And how could we actually start to rethink how we do church and how we do discipleship so that we don't have what some people call a secular sacred divide, that over here are the sacred things like prayer and worship and reading our Bible, um, you know, and uh, treating our neighbours nicely. Um, and then over here in this other category is everything else, um, work, sports, um, technology, all those things. So actually, what does it look like to be a community where, yeah, God is redeeming all things, and that's part of the heart of how we understand what the gospel is and how we can share that. So that's what has, has really shaped then about eight, nine years of my life, was working at Regent College, um, trying to be a bridge out. That's where the Reframe course came from, um, was really trying to say at the Marketplace Institute, how do we equip Christians and individuals to have a, a complete vision for their life that includes Jesus at the centre of it. So that's what I did um, uh, at Regent for a number of years, and I continue right now to do that, um, cu currently running a strategy business again, but remain very passionate and quite involved in the UK around, okay, how do we help the church have this vision for all of life? So when it comes to, you know, what you're doing day to day, Mark, is, is, is it easy for you to describe a typical day? Uh, have you got a sort of a two minute elevator pitch you could give us for what your work actually looks like? I, I do know there's some complexities to it and it's changing all the time. Yeah, so I probably don't have a typical day, but um, I run a firm called Peregrine, which is a strategy firm, and we work with purpose driven businesses. So businesses that are pursuing a better way of doing business so uh, these are leaders who uh, don't like the status quo and basically they're saying okay we want to have a vision for our businesses that is more than profit so it's certainly not less than profit because you need profit to survive as a business but how can we have a vision that is more than profit that we actually see what we're doing is contributing positively to the world and to all our stakeholders so we provide strat strategic services to help them think that through to find new ways of working to adopt what others are doing so that purpose essentially permeates all of uh, all of their business we talked a little earlier about some of those gaps or deficits that you had experienced uh, in church and you, you you weren't blaming your specific church for that but just over the years hadn't really picked up on it. As you look around and as you travel now, are you seeing some of those deficits being filled in? Where, where, are, the, where are the gaps still in people's thinking around, around business from a, from a Christian point of view in, in different churches? And again, there'll be massive variation, I guess. 
I think that's a great question. Um, and I think the exciting answer is that I think things are changing. I think the last 20, 25 years since I started this journey, um, things have changed a lot. Um, I think probably the biggest change, which is so fantastic, is that I don't often find churches or pastors that believe theologically in that secular sacred divide. They do believe that all, all you know, God is redeeming all things, that actually... Um, everyone in the congregation has a role to play, that we're all called into God's redemption of the world and we can all um, be part of that big story. You know, and so the congregation isn't just there to serve church on Sunday, provide money for the most important thing, which is um, you know, missions and evangelism um, or helping the poor, all of which is important. So I want to say like, it's not less than, it's just more than. You know, those things are still very important. Um, but it's also to understand that, you know, those those called to work in households, to work in businesses, to work in education, to work in healthcare, those are also important to the kingdom. They also care. So I think that over the last 20 years, what I'm encouraged about is that the, the underlying theology is changing so that a lot of pastors and a lot of churches would agree that God cares about all things. I think where the challenge lies is in two areas i think one is but what does that mean in practice so i think that we can have our our our, our hearts you know can be encouraged and then our theology and our minds can be changed but then what does it mean for our hands like how does it actually change the way that i run a business or i do education and i think that's the kind of the as it were the kind of frontier that we need to kind of pioneer into or and mm-hmm. so I think that that's one is just like how do you equip people's hands and then I think the second one is just what does the shape of church look like I think that we still have a shape of church that even though theologically we might not agree with the secular sacred divide that it still reflects it so it's interesting to look at like who goes on the platform what stories and testimonies we give we don't often exactly. have people on the platform who is like a teacher telling us about how good like you know came into their space in uh, in the school and helped them do some things or you know if you look at the songs we sing we never sing anything about like um the city or work or i mean it sounds really weird and probably a bit dull to talk about like singing about work um but all those things matter because they they shape us they shape the way that we think they're they're discipling us and so i think a lot of pastors that i know which many of them are friends our region and so they're asking again okay i have this different theology but i'm not actually quite sure how that changes the practice of church so i think Mm, pastors mm. are asking that question and i think that's one of the frontiers and i think individuals like you and me and probably many on this listening on this podcast are also asking okay i get it in my head and my heart but how does it change in practice so i think that's that's the next stage i think in um and I think this kind of this movement to recover a sense of the church's vocation in the world. Yes, I was tempted to borrow Craig Gay's sort of phrase there. Eh? You can be a, a practical dualist, uh, even though you're saying the, the theology has shifted. But actually, if your church practices and what you give attention to never actually reflect that. Yeah, and. I'm a practical dualist, right? Like I've been trying to do this 20 years and I still feel on a daily basis I'm a practical dualist. But that's okay. I mean, if you think of our own lives, it's not like once we come to faith and we know the Lord that like 
all of our personal lives are just sorted out, right? Like, I mean, I think as I go on, I just discover more things that are wrong with me than I do more things that are right with me. But that's okay. Like, that's the journey of grace. Like, we don't, not everything has to be fixed at once. So I think the fact that we come to this realization we're practically dualists is kind of okay. But it's about, you know, it's, I have a friend, it's kind of corny, but I like it. It's about direction, not perfection, right? Like, God's not asking us to like be perfect he's just asking us to like you know go on a on a trajectory another corny phrase that i like uh from the vineyard movement is like come as you are but don't stay as you are (laughs) like it's okay that like we might have churches that like don't know how to do this or we have businesses or our own jobs that's okay come as you are but then let's like go on a journey together to kind of find um a better way and then just one other thing i'd say that's different over the last 20 years that I think is encouraging for us is that 15, 20 years ago, I had to work quite hard to make the case that business was had some flaws in it, that there was like elements that were broken. And I'm talking like in the marketplace, secularly, that like you had to kind of build this case and show like this many people are unhappy with employment, you know, like it's kind of creating inequalities throughout the supply system, that's doing this damage to the environment. Um, that you had to make that case that for change. What's interesting is that I don't see in the marketplace that you have to make that case as strongly anymore. A lot of people know that like business isn't as great as it could be. Like a lot of people know there's a, a lot of brokenness. The problem that most people face is they don't know what to do about it. So there's this sense, and I think this is where then people start to feel a sense of apathy and despair, is that this is as good as it gets. Like there is no alternative. We sometimes call it Tina. Like there is no alternative. So we know there's flaws in capitalism. We know there's flaws in our global economic system. We know there's flaws with businesses at a day-to-day level, but there's no alternative. And I think it's into that space that not Christians alone, um, we've got many allies, uh, you know, of other faiths and non-faiths in this space, but we, we, sh- we are a people of hope, at least we should be, and say like, no, actually, there is an alternative. We can find alternatives. We can, you know, uh, we can find better ways of doing business. Is it easy? No. But, you know, with the Holy Spirit, with each other, like we can find better ways of going. So I think that's a a huge area of encouragement to me that there is an openness and an acknowledgement that things could be better. And I think that gives us a great opportunity to um, go on a journey together with others to find that better place. Mark, I know as part of this conversation that you've done work both in the charity world and the business world and the way that businesses think about charity and think about philanthropy that it's something that's on the rise it's not that they're wanting to somehow seek absolution by giving money away but maybe talk us through some of the ways that you've approached philanthropy and some of the ways that you describe it to to business I think that's a great question Sam and I think that one of the interesting things over the last kind of 20 years is the boundaries between philanthropy, charity and business have started to blur where, you know, you traditionally had those as separate categories. And now you have things like social enterprises, which is a business approach to solving social issues and social problems. And then you've got um, charities that sometimes have a business arm. And then you've got businesses wanting to give some of their profits and some of their time away philanthropically. So I think all of those are, are positive moves and we're um, seeing 
blending of different uh, categories. Even there's this idea around impact investing, where you invest in areas that have um, some element of social impact. So um, in the business world, over the kind of particularly in the 90s, the term that this was kind of called was corporate social responsibility um, where um, corporations would give a or businesses would give a proportion of their profits or their time into local charities or local schools or local communities I think those are really positive moves I think what we're also trying to do is I think that as an evolution that um, corporate social responsibility CSR is a really good thing and a positive thing but I think that it's to go kind of one further for businesses and not to necessarily purely separate out you know we do our business and then we do good over here through our philanthropy but actually to say like how can our business be a force for good in its own right so that still means we could give a portion of our profits away but actually what does it mean to um re-narrate um both the kind of the story of our business and then down at a dna level how we understand how our business contributes to the flourishing of our city or our our town or our village or our society and I think that would be the part that we're trying to kind of push one step forward because sometimes it it doesn't really make sense if you've got a business that you know does incredible damage maybe sociologically or or environmentally to your city but then you build a park for the kids with the profits that it makes so what we're actually trying to say is like actually could we bring these things into more of an alignment Um, and there's many examples of businesses throughout history uh, like Cadbury's was started in um, Birmingham uh, with this idea of, um, you know, a chocolate business that would employ those that couldn't find employment. Um, And it grew. And so I think there's a, a, you know, there's ways that we can reimagine our businesses that they're actually doing good and contributing as well as using our profits philanthropically. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I like that. And what you're describing, it's almost more than a re-narrating, isn't it? It's a reanimating it, and it's a real... Because um, I, I think a, sometimes I think of a re-narration, it might, might be the cynic in me, but you can sort of, hey, how do we tell our story in a way that <laughs> makes us not sound as bad as we are? You know, almost like a, yeah. the kind of pejorative terms like greenwashing and other things where you're trying to actually do some sleight of hand. You're, you're talking about at a, at a much more foundational level than that, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And there is, there will always be that kind of thing, the greenwashing, like kind of whitewashing, or you could even say like purpose washing, where you've got a story that, you know, kind of narrates how you, you know, contribute positively, but your actions don't. Um, And that's obviously, you know, A, it's possible and you can't stop that um, other than kind of call it out when you see that. But I think that what we're talking about is actually having a a reimagination for the business. That's what I say at at kind of its its DNA level, like that actually we want this, you know, a purpose for good to permeate through our actions and our activities. Not perfectly, because as we're saying, like you can never get there perfectly. But again, it's about direction. It's about saying, like, this is the journey we want to go to. Um, this is how we understand, you know, how our business contributes something positive to the world. And I think, you know, that's often working with people individually or at a business level. If, if people say, well, where do I start? I actually think that's one of the best places to start, which is basically to say, you know, how do I understand how my job, my vocation, my gifts contributes positively to the flourishing of society? Like in Christian language, we would use the word shalom. 
um, well-being, flourishing. And I think it's the same in business. Like, how is my business, how is the world a better place because my business exists? And I think trying to answer that question at a real level and not just that surface level um, actually really sets us on a, a really good foundation to then go on a journey to say, how does that permeate? everything we do and how to create benefit for all of our stakeholders and that to me is what I think the vision of a, of a business should be and 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 certainly if you're a Christian if at the heart of the Christian story is to you know love your neighbor as yourself it's basically saying okay how do I love all my neighbors through this business like how do I maximize instead of maximizing profit it's like how do I maximize benefit and blessing and love to every stakeholder that's involved in this business now that's not easy and then we get into benefits of like what which stakeholder do you prioritize over the others and all those things and um definitely if you're interested in those let's call me up we have a long discussion and that's you know we're, we're trying to find tools and ways to understand that like um even you know do you, what, what about competitors? How do we think about competitors? You know, the kind of dominant way of thinking about it in the marketplace is this kind of survival of the fittest competition, gladiatorial, like fight to the death. And, and, and there's a narrative that says that's good, right? That like, you know, one of the kind of primary ideas around capitalism is we need uh, competition. And I actually think the competition is a positive thing, but is it a gladiatorial kind of competition, fight to the death? Is that our metaphor? Or is it more like in sports where you've got, you know, two teams that are actually driving each other to higher levels? I mean, I think of uh, the beloved in your country, All Blacks, you know, where they've been setting a standard that I think you know, other countries have tried to emulate. And so actually... They're eclipsing at the moment, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can only hope and pray that that is true uh, after being on the receiving end of of many losses. But um, yeah, so the question is, you know, when we think about competition, do we think of that as gladiatorial fight to the death competition? Mm. You know, should I, as a business, if I have the opportunity to take my competition out of the kneecaps you know, should I actually do that? You know, um, obviously these are complicated questions, um, but our metaphors and the way we think about things actually do have a deep way of shaping us. And obviously I don't live in a fairy tale world where, you know, if we do good, everyone else will do good. Mm. So, you know, and the Bible doesn't live in a fairy tale world. Jesus himself said, you know, innocent as doves, you know, kind of wise as serpents. So all these things uh, are you know, areas that sometimes are complex and difficult, but I think can also be really exciting to imagine new ways of doing things. So with that summary in mind, it might be quite nice if we changed direction a little bit and, and talked about some other aspects of your life. You're, you're back living in the UK, having spent all that time in, in North America. You're, you're married to a North American, uh, two young kids, why don't we just sort of start? You you were you were single for a long time, and uh, something that we we briefly touched on last week when we caught up. You you had to sort of reconcile that you might be forever. Yeah, no, that is um, yeah. It's obviously a, a very different part of my story and journey. Um, yeah, so I, I live in London, married to Jen, who is amazing, and I'm very lucky. Um, she's from Kansas City in the states, so we're. 
um, UK-US marriage, and we have two small children, Emily and Will. Emily's four, and Will is uh, one and a half years old. And yeah, I, I got married at 36, which was a lot later in life than I expected, and was quite, you know, was quite a, a journey for me. I think um, I, I sometimes think of it as, you know, a, a war of loves. You know, the kind of love of God and trusting Him but then also kind of wanting to pursue my own sense of what I think will bring me happiness. And for me, you know, obviously you've got things like, you know, I thought, you know, success in, in work or, yeah, you know, I was really big into rugby. So that was a big part of my life, but probably the biggest thing for me was like, okay, if I can find the right person to marry, like that's what will bring kind of fulfillment. So yeah, that was, it's been a big journey for me is, is, you know, actually okay can I trust God with the things like most dear to me and for me a lot of that was um related to to being married um and I you know I would have been happily like my sister got married right out of uni the second week after she graduated and that was kind of my dream like meet someone in high school you know and then get married quite early so it was quite a shock as life went on that you know, I didn't meet someone that I thought, you know, this was someone that I should get married to. Um, and, you know, it involved some some really difficult times. I think when you're going through your 20s, you think, oh, there's lots of time. And, you know, and then you get into your 30s and you start to kind of like get a little bit more nervous. But you think there's, you know, a lot of time. And, yeah, I, I started to actually realize, well, um, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, maybe that's not going to happen. And it's a hard place to be. And I've, you know, I was there um, and I've got friends, you know, who are single at the moment um, and they're, you know, not sure what to do. And uh, I think for me, probably, again, everyone's story is different. And I don't want to tell my story saying, look, this is what happened to me and it all worked out, um, which, you know, is also a myth that, that somehow getting married then sorts my life out as well and that's not that's not about Jen that's just about you know uh, my own kind of insecurities and needs and giving all of those to God whether I'm married or not. Making the decision to actually marry somebody from the other side of the world um, and, and how you how you worked through that actually you know really actually going hey how's how's this going to work well I'm, I'm, I'm from here you're from there uh, one or other of us is not going to be home yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I met Jen in Texas and she had actually only been there for about six months, was kind of in an interim spot. And then I was just supposed to be there for a month um, on my way back to London um, and uh, ended up meeting her. And uh, the kind of, you know, the slightly romantic side is didn't get on my return flight and, you know, chased after her and persuaded her to marry me a year later. Um, but yeah, I think that obviously it, is a challenge um, with the distance. I think particularly as we get older, just with our parents and uh, grandchildren being at a distance. And then just when you want to see your parents, um, when you want to see family, you, you know, there's an extra amount of travel and cost that goes into that. Uh, whereas if they were down the road, um, I think we, we definitely see the kind of the benefits of being more proximate to family. Um, I think for me and I think for Jen, I think when we met, you know, it's like we're traveling along on our kind of individual buses. We very much felt like, OK, you know, we both had trajectories. We were going. I was coming back to London. Jen was doing other things. Um, you know, it was kind of getting off and, and getting on a new bus together and really just 
you know, together starting to kind of share and, and talk. I mean, obviously, we both knew what was on each other's hearts. And obviously, part of, you know, discerning like, oh, this would be, you know, it would be great to get married was a, a sense of common vision and calling. But then that has to get worked out practically. So it was very much, um, you know, praying, asking God, like, okay, where do you want us? Um, and through that process, you know, we, we kind of sensed, like, let's go go to the UK. I'd been away for a number of years. And, and I think Jen was, you know, had always been keen to live overseas. So, you know, we've been in the UK now for just kind of five and a half, coming up to six years. Um, and, yeah, there's definitely cultural differences that we've had to, like, understand. Um, I've spent a lot of time in North America, so I think that definitely gives us an advantage that at least I had some kind of cultural understanding. But sometimes when you're two English-speaking cultures, the differences are more subtle can catch you out. But, um, you know, uh, over time, I think we're starting to kind of discover more and more of those and form our own family culture. Yeah, I think one of the other consequences of getting married a little later on is that if you go and have children, then they're turning up a bit later on as well. And you've, you know, talked about having a four-year-old and an 18-month-old how are you managing kind of a career that is right in its kind of peak at the same time as you're required to be uh, at home having maximum energy for for toddlers and (laughs) sleepless nights and and all of that you know I think of my own dad was uh, he, he was kind of 15 years younger than I am at the ages that my kids are now. And so by the time his career was requiring of him the sorts of things that it's requiring perhaps of you and me, we were teenagers and he he wasn't having to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question and probably something that um, has been a bit of a kind of a surprise and a a challenge over the last uh, few years since we had kids, which it's, uh, you know, a wonderful thing. You say, like, how are you managing it? (laughs) I think the simple question is, like, not managing it very well. (laughs) feels like utter chaos, like, all the time. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of my friends and my peers, yeah, their children are are older, you know, kind of, like, eight all the way up to, like, you know, university. So they're kind of out of nappies and out of that very kind of physically intense time where like the children kind of they need a lot of you kind of physically obviously at different stages they need different things and so it has been a kind of an interesting thing where like my practical capacity um has diminished at the same time where like vocational vision has like really expanded and I've got like all these ideas and these dreams and things I want to push forward with you know kind of with work and and in church and then at the same time you know there's a real need and, and a desire to be at home with the kids as well. And so, and then, yeah, lack of sleep is, is, is kind of a big, you know, continuous kind of thing. I think um, at first, it, and it, it does remain a challenge and a shock, but I think that one of the things that it's challenged me um, is, I think, is that also seeing that being a kind of a father is part of God's vocation. I think that we do have this priority in Western culture to prioritize like our identity around what we do. Um, Mm. And that's obviously often associated with kind of like our work, but actually, you know, like we're called to 
um, to raise children and to raise families and to also raise spiritual children. So, you know, I'm talking about in the context of my own biological children, but everyone is called to like be fruitful and multiply. And I think that in the church that that involves, you know, investing in people younger than us, you know, helping disciple them, helping them to grow. And so I think that, you know, it is different. Like my, my life story is different to what I thought it was going to be. And I think we all wrestle with that. Like our story in our life never unfolds in the way that we thought it would be. And I think often most of us think that we're off track or we should have been somewhere else. I have this continuous kind of thought like, oh, you know, should I have turned left instead of right, you know, and then I'd be over here and is that a better place? And our life is always unfolding in a way that we didn't expect it. But I think is it what I have to do is I have to take that to the Lord and I have to just submit it and say like, Hey, like, you know, my life is yours. Like my time is yours. Um, my impact is yours. Like, and it's a continuous kind of laying down of trust. And, you know, my life story is unfolding differently to how I thought it would be. And some of that I'd like, and some of that I don't like, um, but actually trusting you with all of it. Um, and trusting you that, in your in your timing, this is what you had for me, and yeah, I, I you know, I'm a dad in my forties, and yeah, hopefully we'll have more children, so we're going to stay like in these young years at the same time where I want to do a lot of things, and sometimes those clash. But I think just spending time with the Lord, just asking Him, you know, h- how do I manage this? How do I manage these different responsibilities? Trying not too much to compare to my peers, and like where where they're at and what they can do and just trusting the Lord with all of it. So it's, it's just a continuous process daily, I'd say. <laughs> awesome. Mark, another aspect of family life I wanted to ask you about was your own family growing up. And mm-hmm. because I know a couple of your friends really well, they've told me that your own dad has been quite unwell for a, a good part of his life. What sort of impact has that had on you? And have you spent time reflecting on that and what it means? How have you sort of reconciled that in your in your own heart and mind? Yeah, no, Sam, it's, it's a big like part of my um, my story and my life, and probably I think yeah, you know, always will be. So um, the context of that is yeah, my dad had an accident in his twenties. Um, which severely damaged his back um, and has restricted him. So he, he can he can walk, um, but you know very difficult for him to um, get far out. You know to travel um, to do most of the things that you and I would do uh, to carry things, um, and it's got progressively worse uh, during my lifetime. Um, and then probably the most significant thing is he lives with a very high degree of pain. So I think often many of us, you know, we kind of have bad backs but when I say a high degree of pain I kind of one level down from a kind of a a morphine level of pain so I think to see someone through your life you know suffer with that like degree of kind of pain is very difficult as well as I suppose as I've got older um, realizing that yeah there were a lot of things as an active boy that were missing that my dad who's an absolutely amazing dad and, and, and loves me incredibly, but just couldn't participate in, you know, couldn't participate in kind of sport with me and, you know, couldn't, we couldn't go on kind of adventures and trips together. Those, those types of things, I guess you realize later, um, 
is kind of a void where you know a able-bodied parent uh, would often be able to to be there. So um, I think you know it's it's, it's kind of a, a struggle on, on multiple levels uh, to kind of come to terms with that. Mainly for me, probably spiritually, I come from a very kind of charismatic um, environment in church and believe in healing, and I've actually seen people healed literally in front of my eyes. So. Um, you know, I believe in a God that heals. You know, I think that what Jesus was doing in his life and we read about in the scriptures wasn't just for a time then, but it's for a time now. And yet I grew up with my dad being pretty much prayed for by like all the big healers um, and healing ministries, you know, in North America and the UK and like not seeing any change in him, you know, and not seeing, you know, someone that I think, it lives a very, you know, to use a biblical term, like a very righteous life. Like my dad is a very good man. He loves God. Um, you know, he follows, you know, he's always followed the Lord. So, you know, what does it, what does it mean to see people that you love suffering, you know, tremendously during your lifetime? And then what does it also mean for people that know God to suffer? And uh, so that's been, um, yeah, it's been a real challenge and a struggle and something that I've had to come to, to terms with during during my life, both um, as a as a child, but then particularly, I think as an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mark, that that's helpful for us to hear. Actually, have you sort of landed anywhere with that? Yeah, I mean, I think landing is like an interesting question because I think you know, like I can never be. I think when we see people that are suffering, like we can never like completely be at peace with it so you know like I I suspect that like my dad you know is not going to get healed before like he you know the end of his life and when he goes to be with the Lord um and so there's a kind of an acceptance of that that I've had to wrestle through um and I think accepting the fact that like you know that even though like we know the Lord, we still experience like suffering in the world. And it's incredible also to like the witness that it brings. So, you know, if you want to ask someone, if someone was to ask me, like, why should I believe in Jesus? Like, I've got a really good life. And so, you know, it like, I think, you know, it probably doesn't carry as much weight as someone who is actually in real suffering, who then says like, God is good. And actually you should like, you know, he's worth following, he's worth trusting in. I think it brings a weight that, frankly, like, I don't have. Like, when my father shares and seeing his life in the midst of suffering, um, very much in the context, you know, similar to kind of the way that Job, like, you know, is faithful in his suffering to profess who God is. And so I think that, like, one aspect is coming to a place of accepting that, you know, as much as I want my father to not be in pain and to not suffer and to be honest just sometimes it's just hard you know like sometimes the days the days are long you know the weeks are long like and it's really it's really difficult and then even particularly as he's getting older it gets more complicated um but I think I've come to this realization that um it like this is not the end and that like for good you know that for my dad like to know God and to love God and to love his family and to, you know, that, that somehow I had to trust and believe that all of this, you know, is, is building something that we'll see in the new heavens and the new earth that we can't quite see now. And so I think I've come to a place of kind of 
accepting and trusting God with that outcome and seeing that somehow he's going to use all of this, you know, going forward in a way that I can't fully understand. But I think the New Testament hints to in terms of ruling and reigning and how we participate in God's character. And then, so I think Mm. there's this acceptance, but then I also think there's this part that I can't accept it. (laughs) Um, And so, Mm. like, I think, you know, I, I still pray. I still pray both, you know, for for his entire healing and also for the, you know for day to day that like his pain would go down or this that crops up or that that crops up and i think that somehow though i've managed to like land in a pl- place of peace between those tensions where like accepting that you know again our lives do not take the shape often that we believe but like giving that to the lord and trusting him uh, trusting that maybe my dad's probably not going to be healed before the end of his life, but then he will be healed when, you know, he's raised. And then also like not accepting that I just, I just have to, when you love people, you just have to pray for them. You have to pray that like mm-hmm. that suffering. And I think that's okay. So I kind of live between mm-hmm. those two places. Um, it's hard sometimes, really painful. That's probably the thing that makes me the most emotional is to think about, you know, my dad's suffering, but um mm-hmm. You know, it's also a place where um, I just have to surrender it to the Lord and, and trust him. And I firmly believe it challenges, like, do I really believe, like, that we're going to rise again into the new heavens and new earth? Because if you actually think about it, it sounds kind of crazy. Like, when I explain it to my friends, like, I'm like, this is, like, crazy. Like, we think, mm. like, we're going to come to life again. And, like, you know, but, it, you know, it, do I really believe it or do I not believe it? And, um you know, as crazy as it sounds, I think all the other alternatives are, are more crazy. Mm. Mark, we started this uh, call by talking about the FIFA World Cup, and I know you're, you're more of a rugby man. Uh, do you find time for any sport at the moment, hobbies, things like that? What do you sort of, um, you and Jen, what do you do, do, you do to sort of sneak in the, the, the in between the gaps? Yeah, I think it's a bit more like sneaking in between the gaps. Um, life feels like full every week doesn't quite go to plan. Um, uh, and as, as many people know, um, yeah, so I think it's, it's just one of those times where I'm just trying to, in the midst of not having a rhythm, like find, you know, find pockets of time to spend with, with God, find pockets of time to kind of try to stay healthy-ish, um, which is, you know, both are, are challenges, you know, when you don't know when the day's going to start or how the day's going to go. Um, so, yeah, I, I think very much I'm trying to learn from others and, and figure it out, figure out how it all fits. I think many of us feel like, you know, where does it all fit? And probably, yeah, some of the kind of the hobbies, um, it's probably not the season for them. And I think that's often what I'm reminded by others that have shared that there's just different seasons. Um, and this is just kind of a season where, you know, there isn't a ton of time for those things, but I do, uh, I do manage to, uh, watch the rugby at least. Um, and that's fun. And, and occasionally go, I went to South Africa, England, um, just last weekend, which was fun. Didn't go to the All Blacks, um, England game, uh, but did watch it. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, still get to kind of do a couple of those things, but yeah, I think between, um, family life, work life, church life, um, things are fairly full. Yeah, man, look, I I totally get that, which makes me all the more grateful that you've managed to uh, fit this in, that we've managed to have this conversation over a uh, a platform joining 
us to you there in the UK. Thanks so much, mate, for doing it. Um, you are well loved uh, from over here, and uh, plenty of people uh, send their best. Oh, thanks very much, Sam. Yeah, I'm waiting for Elon Musk to like invent that kind of rocket plane that gets us there in two hours. That would be uh, <laughs> fantastic. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks so much uh, for inviting me um, onto the podcast. Thanks, Zay. Take care.